Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Hey, Modern Therapists, we're so excited to offer the opportunity for one unit of continuing education for this podcast episode. Once you've listened to this episode, to get CE credit, you just need to go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, register for your free profile, purchase this course, pass the post-test, and complete the evaluation. Once that's all completed, you'll get a CE certificate in your profile, or you can download it for your records. For a current list of our CE approvals, check out moderntherapistcommunity.com. Once again, hop over to moderntherapistcommunity.com for one CE once you've listened. Woohoo! Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Woodham with Katie Verdoy, and this is the podcast for therapists about the things that we do in our practices, the things that we do to help our clients. And this is another one of our continuing education eligible episodes. So listen at the beginning and the end of the episode for how you can get CE credits for this. And we have talked before a little bit about working within treatment teams, but we are looking here for how we can best serve our clients by being a part of a treatment team and the considerations that go into building a team, how to get to it, what no matter the acuity of the case that you're working with, how this can still be beneficial to clients and some things that we haven't considered before. So Katie, take it away. Well, I think one piece of this that I think is important to comment on is some folks would consider this part of networking. And I know that has a business connotation and we'll, you know, put together other resources for the business case for networking and and how to use business principles for networking. But we're going to talk about the skills of networking, but this is with the end of having a networked treatment team. So this is a non-co-located treatment team when you're in private practice. Some of the stuff we're going to talk about is also going to be relevant for folks who are in agencies, treatment centers that have co-located interdisciplinary teams. But I, I, I just wanted to say that that these skills are important both for your business and for your clinical practice. But but this really is going to focus on what makes your networking efforts, your networking skills, especially appropriate for clinical treatment teams and best benefit for your client. So I think I just wanted to, to kind of put that caveat in there because I, I, I want folks to recognize that this helps both your business and your clients. We're focusing on the clients today. I know with my practice, I work with a number of different professionals, but you know, in trying to make an episode like this, that we've both worked in agencies before where some of the treatment team sort of stuff was already just put into place. This being a podcast that reaches audiences in both agency settings, community mental health, as well as a lot of private practice people. Since you've been in private practice, do you see a lot of treatment team work either with what you do or with other professionals that you kind of network with? Not a lot. And I think we underutilize this mechanism, especially given the benefits that can come to our clients for it. But I, I think for me in particular, I I definitely treatment team a lot with couples counselors for individuals that I see. I've actually quote unquote treatment teamed with attorneys with other community members. And I've done some of that. And I think part of it is my background in like wraparound and other things in community mental health. But I, I don't see a lot of it. And I don't do this for all of my clients. I think it's 
it's underutilized in private practice, I think. I think that I use it maybe more than other people do. And it might just be the acuity of some of the cases that I work with. It might just be that I'm very easily bored and isolated. And I just like reaching out to other professionals and finding any excuse to talk (laughs) with them. But I definitely see some of the benefits for connecting because it does end up providing a lot of different perspectives on what is and isn't working for client improvement. But what, especially for the private practice people, what are some of the benefits that you've come across as far as working in treatment teams, especially if it is something that's not like a co-located service? So. Some of these are both co-located and non-co-located, but the the idea of, of using an interdisciplinary team is often a best practice for a number of populations. I think one that, that's pretty obvious is is one of the populations you work with. Schools with, you know, kind of working with schools and all the other people around children. You know, school children oftentimes have really obvious treatment teams that people will get involved in. There's a big benefit for that as far as kind of doing best practices, getting all the all the p- pictures, all the pieces. Gender affirming care is one where there's research, Chen et al. in 2016, uh, showed that there was better outcomes, that this was the best practice. And this has mental health both in clinic, but also in the community. And so there's both elements, both co-located and kind of hybrid, non-co-located and seniors, I think, are another one where there's there's some obvious treatment team members, different medical providers, that kind of stuff. There's a article, Johnson et al., in uh, 2021 that talks about that, too. So we'll put all the, the references on our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com, as well as on the course at uh, moderntherapistcommunity.com. But, but really just aligning with best practice is one of them. I think the... the the other one that was really interesting, there was a Margolis et al. article in 2018 that was talking about increasing access in rural areas. So bringing expertise into an area where, you know, like clinicians are doing consultation with child psychiatrists. So the psychiatrists are providing fewer services, but providing consultation support. And so, you know, local therapists are able to do more collaborative, positive work with some additional perspective. And I think there's other full programs, and I mentioned wraparound, but but using community supports, uh, interprofessional teams, and other things in wraparound, reduced ho- hospitalizations. It can also give you access to cultural healing and and other folks. There's a an article on r- religious leaders, Osafo et al. And so I think there's obvious benefits that if you know, with all the time in the world, if we can add these folks into the mix, we can bring additional perspectives, we can bring additional access, all of those things. And and some of the, the outcomes found in a lot of these different studies was better treatment compliance, better coordinated care. I mean, how often have you had a client come and say, well, you're saying this, but my couple's therapist is saying that, or my kid's therapist is saying this, and you're saying that, or my doctor said this, or my sponsor said this. And so I think there can be a lot of confusion and conflicting uh, treatment recommendations when you're not coordinating care with the treatment team. And then also, you know, just better outcomes. I mentioned the reduced hospitalizations, but meeting treatment goals, having a lower level of care needed. And so finding ways within your practice to work with the treatment team and work well, and we'll talk about how to do that is really, really important. It, it really does improve outcomes, whether you're co-located or whether you're doing this in kind of a, a networked treatment team. I really want to highlight the involving some of the non-healthcare people into part of the treatment teams, because this is being able to, A, educate other non-professionals on especially things like trauma-informed principles or neurodivergent affirming sort of practices if you're working with neurodivergent clients to better be able to reinforce the environmental factors that can support clients. Those who work with kids, you know, if you're able to talk with teachers and support staff and those kinds of things, but even consider reaching out to like, if there's camp directors or other people like that that can help 
put things into place if there is situations that arise with your clients that can better create an environmental support rather than it just continuing to be, all right, here's this isolated healthcare thing. Obviously, all of this is with client permission, though. Oh, absolutely. And I think the the biggest piece that this is one of your points that I want to just highlight here is it, it requires potentially some advocacy on your part, not necessarily with the client. You want the client to give permission. You, you want to get the appropriate release forms, all of those things. But if you can be an advocate for your client within their world, that's it's a it's an interesting and a different role for some therapists to play, but it can actually really improve your ability to do your work. I mean, if you can change the the environment around your client, sometimes that solves it, right? Right. And you know, I think that there's been a lot in the history of our field and I'm seeing more and more research and practices around this in the last, I don't know, 10 to 15 years, where it is more of a community and environmental approach to what works, rather than it being just kind of this, all right, mental health needs to be something that's completely isolated and is only for you know people who are crazy and that kind of stuff. But when it's appropriate to incorporate more people to build up the supports to help lead to success rather than it being about managing from the top down. That's really where I see the benefits on this. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, speaking to the the acuity level, I think every child in treatment probably would benefit from a treatment team approach, meaning community managers supports the whole family. You know, the wraparound motto is kind of client voice and choice. So you obviously want to identify with the, the the client who they would want to have involved. But having the kid be an IP trying to struggle against systems that don't support them, I think is is really not helpful, regardless of if it's a you know a small problem or a bigger problem within that's being identified, you know, kind of the identified presenting problem. So we've got a lot of the benefits of how this works. We have better treatment compliance, better care, better outcomes. We're able to support people somewhere in between the extremes of needing to hospitalize people, but maybe a little bit more universally than just kind of, you know, worried well, one, you know, located service or one singular service sorts of things. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of this. How do people develop some of these treatment teams if it's not already built into an agency or where they're already working? Some of this requires some creativity. The The place that I always start, and this is something that probably every business training you've done has, so we're not going to go into it, but it's really understanding who your ideal or usual client is, or even who the client is in front of you that that you're working with. I think for creating broader teams that you come back to repeatedly, you're going to want to talk about ideal client. But even with current clients, it can be who knows that they need help? How did they find you? Where are they going for additional support? What have they tried before going to therapy? What additional supports will they need in therapy? It's it's not just other therapists. You know, it's easy to say like, oh, well, they the family might need 27 versions of therapy. Let me meet all those folks. It's more looking at, you know, like I think it, what you mentioned, like, do they have a coach? You know, are there are there medical providers involved? Are there tutors involved? You know, like, what is it? I think, and, and maybe that's a good place to start because kids have so many options, but but it's looking at, okay, my particular client, what do they need? So maybe because you work with kids, Kurt, like, how would you identify who else is in your kid's life that would be your kid client's life who would be good to identify as part of a potential treatment team? Usually this is going to involve their family. It's going to involve some places around their education, whether it's a school counselor, if it's a teacher, if it's a, sometimes a person from administration that really helps to make sure that we're all working on the same page. Depending on the client's presenting issue, it might involve sports coaches or other places where a kid might be needing emotional and behavioral support. And there could also be religious leaders. It could also be, 
extended family members. I think uh, Wraparound has a really good example of this. It's just kind of saying like, who does the kid want involved, right? Sure. <laughs> uh, and so I think it's it's something where when you're looking more broadly on who might generally be part of my treatment team, looking at who are the folks that you're commonly coming into contact with. And so schools, great opportunity. Uh, advocates, child advocates, all the folks that you're talking about. And more broadly, it could be child psychiatrists. It could be um, behavioral support folks. I mean, there's just so many different folks that you can reach out to and start to learn more about them. And and the best way is, is like having a case and already starting on it. So like that's that's the good place to begin. But if you're kind of like, hey, I don't have any clients, but I want to start forming a treatment team for what I do, you'll want to think about how do I know where these folks are going to be? For adults, it can be even as, as broad as attorneys. It can be financial planners for like, especially financial therapists. I mean, there's there's so many, like get really creative on who your ideal client is actually interacting with because there's going to be folks that need your support, that need the the understanding that comes across all the different types of teams that might be created around your clients. And so, like I said, we'll have some sort of a worksheet connected to the course so that you can dig deeper into that. But then we go to where do you find them? So you've figured out school people, other like sports coaches, blah, blah, blah. How do I find them? How do you find the people that you do treatment teaming for, Kurt? At this point in my career, it's usually people that I already enjoy working with. That There's a lot of benefits to working with the same groups of people when it comes to, all right, here's a certain client presentation. Here's the psychiatrist that I tend to work really well with on this kind of thing. But if I'm giving recommendations to people who don't have this already established, Going and yeah. meeting other professionals at you know the the networking meetings that they have, going to interdisciplinary trainings, talking with my clients about who they already like to work with. And that ends up being something where it's easier to make kind of a warmer introduction when I can say, hey, we share a client or if a client's okay with it, hey, I was referred to talk with you because you and I seem to be working with the same kind of people. But it's kind of having the confidence to be able to kind of reach out and do that in the first place. Yeah, I think that's important because when you're, especially if you have a very specific niche, you can start kind of moving in the same groups of people. But if you don't share clients, if you're kind of just one of those folks that are coming over and saying, hey, I like what you do, I want to talk with you, it's a little less compelling for folks if it's not something where you're going to be working with them on a case. And so I think the strongest is definitely, you know, really think about treatment teams for your current clients. But I think the niche-specific trainings, the community meetings that are aligned with who you work with, just being in community with the fellow interdisciplinary professionals, I think, could be very helpful because you start to see who you click with, who has similar focus to you, and, and you can really reach out to them and connect with them for a lot of different reasons. The same thing goes with consultation groups. We're joining established teams, so you've already got... You find a dietitian for your eating disordered client, and then they connect you to their GP that works with eating disorders, and then you're kind of in that in that little team, and then start working with them more regularly. I think the other thing that can be very helpful is seeking the resources that your clients need or will need. And so finding the local medical providers that are trauma-informed for your, your clients that have you know, sexual trauma, uh, looking for resources from within the community. So, so spending extra time for your clients, helping to get really solid referrals and, and looking specifically for these things and reaching out and saying, hey, I've got a client that I, I need to find a such and such for. I'd love to talk with you to kind of see how you operate so that I can see if this would be a good referral, if this would be a good match. I think it it's something where being really open about what you do and how you operate can be very, very helpful because you don't know who the community supports are that are going to be part of these teams. You don't know who might be hearing from your ideal clients. And so those folks could also refer back and you can be you can join someone else's team. 
in that way too. And I think, you know, underneath a lot of this is just being able to have, once again, that confidence to go out and reach out to other people, let them know what you have to offer and being able to join these teams as well as confidently kind of listening because that's showing that everybody is able to participate. You know, sometimes these teams can end up having a hierarchy where you know, the psychiatrist on the team can't be questioned because they're the one who holds a medical degree where some of the teams that I really like participating in is where everybody's input is valued equally. But once again, that kind of does take a little bit of being able to put yourself out there as a confident person with something to offer. Otherwise, you might just be developing a very weak nervous system for your clients. Oh, goodness. That's pretty funny. I think that point is really, really important is that you're not going to want to just be in treatment team for with anyone. You want to make sure that they offer the right services, of course. But for most of us, that they're trauma-informed or are willing to become trauma-informed with uh, some additional training from you, that there is an appropriate cultural humility or a willingness to to learn more about the clients that you're working with that you share with them a real willingness to collaborate. I, I I hate the treatment teams that have someone that just is, this is how it goes and I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to respect your expertise, all of that. Uh, but it really means kind of meeting at these days it's meeting virtually, but in the past it would be getting together for coffee. And, and sometimes now it's, it's that too. I actually had a treatment team meeting yesterday over, over lunch. <laughs> All, all without any identifying information, but it was nice to to uh, have a little bit of a quick conversation with someone in person about our shared clients. And so it's it's really having some of these one on one conversations initially to see is this this the type of professional that's going to be helpful to my clients and someone that I can collaborate with effectively. Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. So what do you look for in these other team members? Like, how do you know when somebody is good and is going to gel with you and the way that you work? And sometimes it's broadly talking about either the case that we're sharing, if it's something where it's a an actual in-process treatment team situation, or how they perceive the world. So often you meet someone and 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 if you're doing the whole like let's have coffee or that kind of stuff and you're talking about things, if you if you're just kind of broadly talking about how hard the profession is, or if you're kind of talking about the weather or the news or, you know, those kinds of things, you're not going to necessarily get to know how this professional conceptualizes cases or how they, they work with their clients. And sometimes you don't, you know, you don't necessarily want to do that over, over coffee, but I like to just think about, you know, kind of, are they taking a hardline medical model stance, which doesn't align for me? Are they using antiquated language that feels like it's really not you know, kind of culturally informed, modern language. How are they perceiving clients in general? I mean, sometimes there's, you know, you get together with other therapists and a lot of folks complain about how 
defensive clients are or how hard they are or you know those kinds of things where they they put this frame on clients that feels really disrespectful or or objectifying and so to me it's it's really do we mesh do we do we seem to broadly have some similar perspectives on the humanity of clients and the importantness of of seeing them as whole people and being present with them but i think then it goes to what is their their theoretical orientation or or how they perceive or their philosophy if they're not clinicians and and how they approach you you know are they showing respect to you i i mean i've had people say like oh my gosh you charge that much is it really worth it you know like people who interact with you in a disrespectful way and it's like well yeah it wouldn't be helpful to me as a clinician to to meet up with those people but it also I, I i get concerned that the way that they treat clients will be flavored with that as well and potentially would undermine my work and so so i think for me that's you know kind of off the top of my head that's how i vet my my folks how do you vet the folks that that you work with or how did you when you initially started getting into some of this I think a lot of what you're describing is accurate for my approach as well. People who are going to work similarly to me, people are going to communicate effectively and not just being kind of where I'm the one doing all of the pursuing to share information that there's kind of a equitable, equal amount of effort that we're putting in to make sure that everybody is doing this for the best interests of the client, that it's not just kind of a check the box sort of thing or kind of an afterthought sort of thing. And I think that it's really just kind of the, who are people that I see as benefiting clients who are kind of easy to work with as well. For sure. The next segment of research that I looked into was, was how do you really create a very effective team? Because finding them, I mean, that's that's the initial part of networking or or getting together, um, establishing a treatment team is is finding the people and determining that you actually want to be in treatment team with them. But then it's actually how do you effectively do it? Because I think if you have an ineffective treatment team, not only does it harm your credibility in the in this in the community and potentially you've lost referral sources and whatever the business case is, but it also can really hinder your client and it can be really it can really negatively impact your client's treatment outcomes i had a a treatment team where i was joining the team i connected with the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist very much had a such a different perspective on how to treat trauma and really talked the client out of continuing to see me and so it was it was very hard to navigate that and it clearly disrupted treatment. Uh, this was a psychiatrist that I believed was over-medicating the client. And so it was something where for me that the, the horrible, horrible treatment outcomes because of a different philosophy. And so, and, and this was after we had had initial meeting and it was a very positive conversation. And so it's, it's something where there's that, that element of really finding and and promoting best practices within your treatment teaming so that you it, it's not a one and done i guess is what i'm saying it's 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 being able to really work effectively time and again whether it's for one client or for a number of clients that you're seeing and so lots of research went into this again we'll put all of that in the show notes but but there's some common themes of what creates a really strong uh, treatment team or interprofessional collaboration is one of the the search terms that I uh, found and started using so the first one is trust and respect when you're when you think about trust and respect kind of in a professional setting what does that what does that look like to you Biggest piece of it is coming together for a common goal rather than needing to prove who's right. And sometimes I end up seeing this with, you know, some of the more, I guess, assigned treatment team groups where the disagreements end up coming at the expense of client progress rather than for client progress and being able to handle different viewpoints you know you're talking about the 
psychiatrist that you had a different perspective on, if that's a situation that's handled in a good way, then it could be like, well, tell me more about where you're coming from, that kind of stuff. But I've seen some assigned treatment teams where it's just like you stay in your lane and that's not the perspective that you know i have and i'm you know the doctor in this and blah 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 that that's really kind of one of the big things that i see when it comes to especially trust and respect type things i think even in the establishment of the relationship i think that that can be part of it and and you know shared vision and primary goals is is one of the other ones we'll get that to that in a minute communication is also one um, that will be really important. And so all of those things, I think they all interplay, I guess is what I'm saying. But when we think about professionals who've wanted to collaborate with us, I'm going to ask the question in a different way. What are things that they can do that do not lead to trust and respect? Besides just my my way or the highway. I think it's sometimes just kind of in the tone in how they talk about clients that you know there's just kind of a respectful way of talking about what client needs are and being able to set them up for success and maybe this is just me being very biased towards the way that I work but looking at situations as opportunities for skill building rather than needing to necessarily just manage clients and being able to put in the structures and supports for that, that I've been in some treatment team meetings where I'm the only one saying, you know, this really doesn't seem like it has a whole lot of client input into this that would maybe make this whole situation work a lot better. But I think it just comes down to a lot of the ways that people end up talking about the people that we're serving that ends up making it really kind of like, oh, you're somebody that I don't really want to work with in the future. The other piece to this is just not knowing someone, right? I mean, I've had folks who quote unquote wanted to collaborate with me who sent me a pamphlet or threw cards at me at an in a, at an event or didn't really have much to offer a conversation. Like I didn't understand what made them strong clinicians or or whatever. I think Part of trust and respect is actually getting to know who you're working with and understanding their expertise and and being able to understand their perspective and professional identity. I think those pieces are are critical. And I think I, I guess this is the research speaking to kind of what you were just saying. It's it's seeing the alignment, but it's also actually treating them like a professional versus a referral source. And this is where, you know, it's I'm I'm mentioning the business case again, but I think some people will do networking solely for the business case. A lot of people need to know what I do. I need to give them all my cards and my, and they're not creating relationships, which is what's the foundation of the treatment team. Yeah. Not just being sold to all the time. Yes, exactly. And so sharing expertise is potentially going to a medical office that works with your clients and doing a lunch and learn on neurodiversity affirming practice or something that is going to show that you're adding to their conversation, that you're providing something to them. And and so you're giving them, they're getting to know you and your expertise based on actual value that you're offering and not just sending a pamphlet or dropping off cards or like candies or something. I think that's the piece where I think networking is both done in in insufficient and in effective ways when you don't see somebody as as a relationship as a potential team member and and understand them better and actually do the full vetting. And so trust and respect happens at the beginning how you approach it also happens during when you're actually working to understand their perspective and and their professional identity, what is it that they do? What is it that that you're bringing to the table here? That one, I think therapists get it. I think they just get nervous about that advocacy and networking that that happens. <laughs> but but it's it's important to remember, you know, trust and respect need to be established for a strong treatment team. 
The biggest one, I think, especially for non-co-located professionals is communication. Because you can't just walk down the hall and talk to the psychiatrist. You actually have to create space for collaboration. And so broadly, create space for collaboration, be consistent, follow up, like do all the things. But but what have you found helpful in communicating with the treatment teams that you've established? I think making it a regular part of all of our schedules. So it's not just kind of a, all right, we all need to react to something and scramble to get together at the same time. But that there's a monthly or every so often, here's what we're working on update. And that can be done as a formal meeting. It can be done in person. It can be done online. It can be done as an asynchronous sort of thing, but it's the regularity of it that I see that ends up making it the most successful. A hundred percent agree. I think there's that element of consistency and follow-up that I think can be very, very challenging for a lot of clinicians because you get you get busy, you forget. Uh, I, I put stuff like that in my calendar. I schedule the next one when I am in the the previous one or in the current one. I feel like if you can really create infrastructure around communication, that's really, really important. It's I, I liked the, the phrase creating space for collaboration that came from one of the research articles that I read. Um, there was another article that was talking about kind of digital communication being pretty much as effective as in person. And so I'll link to that in the show notes. So I, I don't think that in the digital age that we're losing anything. And in fact, because we're so used to teleconferencing and video conferencing, I think that we're potentially better at digital communication than getting together in person these days. But but I think even getting really creative, I like the digital asynchronous, like, hey, you know, we've, we both have HIPAA compliant emails. We can email back and forth with some of the folks. I, you know, we, we text if there's something that does come up and we have to react versus having these planned coordination meetings. And so I think it's, you know, especially when you know your folks really well that are on these treatment teams with you, it can be very nice to actually have open lines of communication that you can use regularly, especially for more high acuity cases or cases that have complex things pop up where you you want to talk to somebody that's on the team and, and knows what's going on. And one of the other benefits of asynchronous work is that sometimes you're able to write those messages with your client present. So that way your client is still able to be involved in the treatment team meetings as well and be able to be a part of some of the communications and how you're able to express some of the concerns. And this can help support them to be able to advocate themselves to some of the other professionals that they might not be as comfortable with. I love that because that serves that purpose and also for folks who are like, I'm insurance-based. How I don't have time for all of this. <laughs> it's in a session. You're doing concurrent documentation and it can be part of the build service. I think it I think there's so many reasons to to do this that that even if and we'll talk later about, you know, kind of the insurance question but in more detail. But I think it's that element of being able to involve the client and fit it into the schedule that you already have so it becomes consistent and it becomes part of your standard operating procedure. So the next one that is within a lot of these studies that I looked at was shared vision and primary goals understood. And we've talked about this a little, but I, I think it makes sense maybe to, to, to get a little bit deeper into what that means. And so when we discuss a case with our treatment team members, it can be very important to to understand all the perspectives in the room to to incorporate all of those perspectives into a full picture and to really get to a place where you come to some sort of a, an agreement uh, on kind of the similar goals same goals complementary goals uh, but really getting to a shared vision i think if you're at a place where Provider A wants X and provider B wants Y. I think you you may be working at cross purposes. And so I think being able to really get to a shared vision is important. 
Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. Do you have an example of, of where this worked really well and maybe you didn't start with a shared vision? Well, one of the things that I've talked about a number of times over the last couple of months is that the things that we're incorporating in our practice is uh, working as a DBT team. And part of each of our DBT consultations is going over a consultation agreement and built into this, you know, we kind of go through our rules each time is, you know, one of the consultation team agreements is consultation to the patient. The primary goal of this is to improve our skills to treat the clients, that this is about being able to work for their benefit. And sometimes that means that working through the discourse that happens in those meetings is us needing to get to a place of coming back to the question of what actually benefits the client here. What happens if you don't agree on what benefits a client? I haven't had a situation where we haven't been able to work through that yet. And maybe it's just because the treatment team members that I have are all just very awesome. And we're able to <laughs> be able to work through a bunch of that stuff. But sometimes I could envision even asking the client to join in some of these meetings and to be able to advocate for themselves here's what I want, or here's what I want to be able to get to the outcomes that we're all working towards. It's just to empower the client towards what they want. You know, I can have the best treatment plan in the world, but if it's something that the client doesn't agree with, then it's not going to go anywhere. I think that's a really good starting point with is getting back to the client and the client's goals. The The thing I'm thinking about for my own practice is couples versus individuals there individual therapists and the the common complaint i'm sure you've heard this refrain many times is that couples therapists hate individual therapists because couples therapists are working in benefit of the couple and all of the individual therapists want the clients to get divorced <laughs> <laughs> and and that's that's huge conf conflict of of shared vision right like the primary goals are very different right so one of the things that I've found in collaborating with a number of different couples counselors is I really try to take the lead from them on what how they understand the couple and try to gain information. And I also try to share information related to what my client might not be bringing to treatment so that there's that we're not only are the shared goals present, we're working in figuring out and supporting the couple because that's, you know, kind of the primary goal that's where treatment started but also in in trying to make sure that that all folks really have a very clear picture on it so that we can get to a shared vision i know that one of the couples counselors that i've worked with was like and this is what i'm supporting the clients in because this is their stated goal and i'm thinking in my head well i don't know if that's in the best interest of my client let's talk about this a little bit but in being able to think about okay how do we work together for that vision that the clients want and that and and allow them to to go through that process. I think it can be hard when you're thinking about okay, well individually this is what's happening. But in the larger system in the family and the couple and whatever, there are there are different goals and so I think being able to have a lot of conversation and get to a place of okay, I don't know if I totally agree with what the clients, what they are stating they want to do in the long run, but I'm going to support them getting to that decision on their own. You know, I'm not going to undermine, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to be very focused on supporting that goal versus my goal of independence or my goal of, of whatever it is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And so sometimes it's it's just really getting into sharing context, digging deeply, and sometimes it's really understanding the philosophy of the folks you're working with, the treatment orientation that that, that they have, because sometimes treatment orientation is going to you know kind of 
dictate different types of of goals for clients. But sometimes it's the same goal and sometimes it's complementary goals. And I think if you can get there, that's really, really strong. If you can't get there, you you truly are going to probably undermine each other's treatment. Yeah. And I hear about this from people who might be earlier in their career who are starting to test out some different theories, who might be facing some growing pains within the agencies or the treatment teams that they're working in. I'm hear this a lot from people in like treatment centers where they are being kind of pushed into a certain kind of theory just based on the environment that they work in. And again, it comes down to that. How do you speak to what is going to work for the client in the best way there? And that's really going to take, you know, kind of the trust of the team to be able to work through those situations or the trust of the overall work environment. And that's kind of sometimes we're beyond just the treatment team and looking at the entire organization in and of itself ends up dictating what actually works for clients. And, you know, I've seen this go through a lot of treatment centers through my career where Sometimes that organizational structure is there to make that happen, and those make for good, successful uh, work environments and treatment teams, but those are very difficult to maintain over long periods of time. And that is a perfect intro into the next point, which is really relationship coordination. Uh, This is important in all aspects, but it's especially important when when you're not co-located, but even larger agencies and organizations where the treatment teaming is more ad hoc or it doesn't have some of the other elements to it, it can be really hard to to get to some of these things. You don't get to shared vision. You don't have consistent communication or space for collaboration. You don't have respect. And so relationship coordination is really identifying how you're going to do the the things above as well as as some of these additional things that that are in this you know, another article that I'll link to in the show notes, but it's, it's something where actively working on the treatment team and kind of this meta process <laughs> and, and coordinating how you're doing all the work is really important. And, and, and this is a, a bigger point. And so I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about the broad points and then you and I can dig into what it sounds like um, for each of us and how we've done these things. But in looking at relationship coordination, the first one is that you want to identify what are the roles of each member. And this can be important when there's multiple therapists or multiple mental health providers like psychiatrists and therapists. I, I think that there's there's also looking at, you know, whether it's a family member that's part of the treatment team, like a parent or a caregiver. It could also be if there are community members, what roles they're playing and how often they're, they're joining into these conversations, uh, what what insight are they bringing to the team? What interventions might they be doing? And so really looking at what are all the roles in this room, you know, kind of this virtual room um, that is working to the benefit of the client. And, and part of that is understanding how you're bridging gaps. Because so many folks are like, I'm a one-stop shop. I can do everything. It's like, no, they can't. And some people do the opposite. We've got a whole episode on uh, defensive practices where you do very little. <laughs> but um, but bridging gaps means really kind of cultivating all the different professional perspectives on how you care for your patients or your clients, um, looking at kind of the different the social differences, the communicational divides, Understanding task division, who's doing therapy, who's doing med management, for example, uh, who's doing parenting coaching or or parent training, who's doing uh, family therapy, who's doing individual therapy, who's doing what, who's going to doctor's appointments. And so it's it's looking at ways that you can actively kind of find all the tasks that need to be done and and bridge the gaps with other professionals who can take those roles. And some of this some of this uh, research comes from really medical model folks where it's like nurses and and doctors and you know kind of paramedics and social workers and therapists and so there's there's a lot of different um, interprofessional teams that that are are talking about this so so you can think really creatively all the different things. 
And so there's the the proact of bridging the gaps, and then there's also the negotiating the overlap. So this is the opposite, trying to prevent the conflicts, the duplication of services, conflicting services for the same thing, and and really getting very clear on on what the responsibilities are, as well as where people can jump in. So for example, risk assessment needs to be a mental health provider, but can can be begun by a paraprofessional or or somebody that can know to pull in. And so making sure that there's that overlaps are are not in conflict. You're bridging gaps, you're doing the things, but you're not you're not stepping on toes, but you're not leaving anything uncovered. And so the the last point from this article was creating space for collaboration, which we've already been talking about. But I think the idea of relationship coordination, actively doing this thing is really important and identifying who's calling the meetings, who's leading the charge, or or why are some folks, you know, when are some folks going to step up and others not going to? And so when you think about relationship coordination and how that might have been playing out in your treatment teams, what are the things that that maybe are some good examples to to describe these concepts in a little bit more practical descriptions. Part of when you're dealing with a team member or something that seems to know all of the answers but doesn't necessarily see you know the entirety of the picture. I'm reminded of a story from one of my colleagues who was relaying that at a clinic that they were working at that the client was not being responsive to kind of the traditional trauma-focused CBT treatment. And in their treatment team meetings, the psychiatrist on staff was just like, well, you need to do, you know, more CBT. You need to do more. This is what's going to work. And the entirety of the treatment team was like, this client is just not responding. They're not getting better from any of this. And in all of the ego, the psychiatrist went in to go and show everybody how to do therapy with this client and then found out trauma-focused CBT was not working with the client. <laughs> so you know, in some of these conflicts and some of this kind of stuff, it's just needing to be able to effectively communicate, but it's also effective communication is being able to listen as well. And so, you know, in looking at some of these conflicts, you know, not every, you know, psychiatrist is going to jump in and have the opportunity or the structure to be like, you know, hold my beer. Let me show you how to go and do this. But even sometimes this might be the effect of <laughs> helping clients. I, I mean, with some of the technologies and stuff now to even be able to say, you know, hey, some of the treatment team wants to be able to see what we're doing. This might be beneficial to actually have other people be able to observe part of our session. So that way we can get a better idea and better represent what's going on. So that way we can get more eyes on what's going on. I know that there's a lot of hesitation around kind of being judged and showing your work and that kind of stuff. But if it's something that can be worked with the client to be like, hey, something is not as effective as it should be right here. Let's get some more eyes on this. That's one of those ways to help deal and make a lot of this stuff more effective here. I really like that. I think that there is an element to this where being able to really be transparent, to be open to feedback, to be able to share what it is you're doing and getting the whole team really working together to improve treatment. I love that. Uh, I do want to have a positive example of psychiatrists, though, because I think that we've been talking about kind of the the stereotype of the know-it-all psychiatrist that that wants to take over treatment or or own the whole treatment. I've had a lot of of conversations with psychiatrists I was collaborating with where Really, they wanted information on the the week to week conversations, really looking at some more of the the details to help with diagnosis or or meds management, even where they would share with me the medications that they're prescribing and what are the types of side effects that I could help the the client look for and 
and understanding what the the mechanism was just giving me that information so that in my week to week interactions with this client i would be able to support them and in turn what i would do is is recommend that they meet with their psychiatrist if there was something going on in the medication i would follow up and and potentially help with med compliance um if the client was wanting to uh, have that kind of accountability and support from me and so it, it's something where there can be that element of very positive sharing and and collaboration where you know there's definitely been psychiatrists where we've talked together and both of us have slightly shifted our case conceptualization you know potentially even diagnosis on our our, <laughs> on our charts because of the different pieces that were brought up um, another another example is a dietitian that was asking very different questions than I was asking from my my therapy client and uncovering more of a severity of an eating disorder than I had seen in my practice. And so I think there's there's that element of them bringing their professional perspective to bear, me bringing my professional perspective to bear and being able to create a more robust picture of the client and case conceptualization leading to stronger treatment and then each of us supporting the other in treatment compliance. And so I, I think that there's there's so much possibility for really positive collaboration. It's just having folks that are willing to do it and being able to to create that space to collaborate appropriately while making sure that you're bridging gaps and negotiating overlaps. So I want to Maybe turn this conversation to some of the practicalities on things, because whether it's, you know, needing to, I don't know, actually see clients, be able to bill for those client hours. A lot of this stuff can be very time consuming, especially if it's not (laughs) the same client and the same treatment team for your entire caseload. So how do you suggest, you know, not making this just kind of an overwhelming like case management portion of people's work? Well, I think one of the pieces that you mentioned that I want to just reiterate here is potentially doing it as part of your sessions with your client. And so adding a collaboration time, you know, part of the conversation is about what you're going to send to the psychiatrist and doing it in that session I or or with one of the other team members. But Outside of the client session, I think that there's setting regular meetings, making sure that there is a mechanism to quickly and effectively communicate. So whether it's calls or emails or texts or messaging through a portal or whatever it is, there's there's definitely different um, portals and structures that can be set up even with clinicians who are not in the same practice. And so lots of technological advances that can support to that. But I guess the the first thing that I should have mentioned this right off the bat is, is getting an appropriate release of information and understanding how much your client wants you to share and not share. And so, so those are the basics is release of information, regular meetings, communication strategies, potentially doing some of the work inside the session. Um, but you mentioned about kind of billing and insurance and that kind of stuff. What is your thought process on whether you bill or or don't bill for these collaborative conversations or treatment team meetings? I look at it as I factor into the fees that I charge clients that I'm going to be doing a certain amount of outside of session work. And I incorporate that into the fees that I charge clients for their sessions. Now, I'm not in network with any of the insurance companies. So this is something that I can completely do on my own. And I also have good enough boundaries that I'm not going to, you know, be spending hours upon hours upon hours for each client in between sessions chasing down every conceivable person that they've ever met in their life. So to me, it's a combination of having the session fees tied in with it, as well as having good enough boundaries to be efficient in the work that I do for them with other professionals in between sessions. For insurance, I think it is a definitely a different picture. For me, I I kind of set it up for myself that I 
had the caseload that I could do some of these extra activities for that I was not able to bill for. Theoretically, there are some meetings that are billable, you know, kind of collateral meetings uh, with folks that are really within their family or, or their extended uh, personal lives. There, there might be some opportunities for billing there. I definitely have had conversations with parents or other things that were billable to insurance. Uh, I think it's family therapy without the client present or something like that. But, but I think being really creative about how you take care of these responsibilities. For most folks, being in isolation, which is a huge problem, right, is something that's not fun, it's not pleasant, and it's not good for your clinical practice if you're completely I- isolated. And so if you're if you already have some infrastructure in place for how you interact with your with other clinicians, uh, the networking activities that you do, that can be it can serve two purposes. It can keep you from being isolated and it can give you a quick mechanism to be able to meet and vet some of these other folks. But once the relationships are established, I think that there can be asynchronous collaboration that happens if you're not able to do the 15-minute phone call in your day. You can do a quick five-minute email or or a two-minute email or whatever it is. And so I think it's it's something where figuring out how to incorporate this into the business as you set it up can be really imp- can be really helpful because if you don't have any mechanism in place, you're not going to do it. For out of network folks like you, I think a lot of folks will will incorporate it into their fees. So this is just part of my doing business. Some folks will actually do more of the bill by the by the minute by the hour kind of and and so some of these services are seen as extra services and so only folks that are using those services get charged for them. But I think that gets confusing and frustrating for clients. So I, I don't know that I recommend that, but I think that there's some of those things that can be considered when you're setting it up. But clinically, I think the the biggest piece uh, that you can do is, you know, kind of going through early in treatment and talking to your client about this possibility and have a mechanism to get a release of information. I have one in my electronic health record, so I just send it very quickly. They fill it out. I'm able to, to immediately interact with their person. Determining how much time you have to spend if it's a regular collaboration, setting regular meetings, having communication strategies in place, and and making sure that you're able to take care of the clients within the infrastructure that is how your business is set up. So the big takeaways in a lot of this seem to be work with people that you're going to work well with. And in those situations where you don't work well with them, find ways to work well with them. And speak to the benefits of the clients to incorporate them as much as possible, even in these meetings, and to help your clients be able to advocate for the goals that they want through things. And this is not something that can just be kind of left to, all right, here's maybe something that we all agree that we should be doing, but actually making it a regular part of treatment because the evidence of how well it works ends up really doing a lot better than just kind of treatment as usual. And it makes treatment more fun, really. I mean, it's so much nicer to not be alone on cases. I think some of it is the relief when you have high acuity cases that you're not by yourself on the cases. And for some, it just makes it more interesting. And you have someone that you can talk with to to understand your cases better. I just, all the, all around, I think it's it's helpful both to your clients and to you. And so I, I just highly recommend creating networked treatment teams. We can have a whole other conversation on how it supports your business, but I think clinically it is definitely something that you want to make sure that you're incorporating with a lot of your clients. It really is way more fun. You can find our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com and you can Buy this course at moderntherapistcommunity.com. That's our learning platform that we are adding more and more content to. Follow us on our social media and join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group, to continue the conversation about this and any of the other topics that we talk about or things that you want us to talk about. And 
consider supporting us through Patreon or buy me a coffee as other ways that you can help keep Katie and I doing what we're doing. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like one unit of continuing education for listening to this episode, go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, purchase this course, and pass the post-test. A CE certificate will appear in your profile once you've successfully completed the steps. Once again, that's moderntherapistcommunity.com. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 